All right, so um, here's kind of the interesting day today is that um, we've, we've planned out um, our preaching schedule really to get us to this point um, where we are in our Lenten journey. We begin our Lenten journey. Um, we join Jesus out in the desert. If you remember how Lent starts for us, it's kind of our invitation to, to follow Jesus into the desert um, with Matthew 4. So Matthew 4 is this, uh, this unbelievable story where Jesus is starting his ministry here on the earth, and he starts his ministry on the earth by heading out into the desert where he is led by the Spirit for 40 days and 40 nights where he fasts. And while out in the desert, he is tempted by Satan himself. And so normally during Lent, we kind of pause and we, we dedicate these six weeks specifically to that journey of repentance, of renewal, of reordering our lives and our loves around the life and the love of Jesus. And we're gonna continue to do that, but this year we're really emphasizing the Lent guide as to how we do that. That's why Kobe took a few minutes to, to explain that to us. This is really how we're journeying together because we're fasting from some things in order to feast on the fact that Jesus is better than all these other things that are pulling at our affections and our attentions. So with that, we're, we're in Lent, we're starting Lent, but at the same time, we're continuing in our journey through the book of John. And so we pick up on this story. We're still in this last night of Jesus's life. He's in the upper room. He's, he's told them all sorts of things. If, if I could just refresh your memory on some of the things that he's been saying, right? He's been telling them uh, that he's, he's washed their feet. He's dismissed Satan from the table who was, uh, had filled up Judas to go and betray him. He told them that he was leaving them. As a result, their hearts became troubled. We know that because Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled in John 14, 1. Their hearts are troubled. They're disoriented in their faith. They probably, we don't know this, it doesn't say this, but probably begin to doubt some of this, uh, some of this journey that they're on. He begins to instruct them about the place where he's going. He tells them that there are greater things that they are gonna set out to do than the things that he's done. There are greater works, that abiding in the true vine is where we will find life. These are all the things that we've discussed so far in this last night of Jesus' life. He tells them that they are his friends, and that is a profound truth for you and me. And then he also goes on to instruct them that though you are friends with me, the world is going to hate you, if for no other reason than the fact that you're my friends. The fact that you're associated with me the world is gonna hate you and their hatred is gonna fuel so much just discord that they're gonna push you out of the synagogues, which was their place, their community. And then it's gonna culminate and climax to the point where the world is gonna hate them so much that they're gonna think they're offering a service to God while killing the disciples. So we enter into this narrative today, this Lenten journey where the enemy has come against Jesus and he started to cause him to doubt or at least try to get him to doubt his identity. If you remember that in Matthew 4, Satan goes to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, you'll do this. If you are the son of God, you'll do that. So there's this great marriage between what Lent has to offer us and what this passage has to offer us today and that is this, that God is going to meet us where we are to bring us where he wants us to be. All the while reminding, reminding us of our identity. All the while reminding us of who and whose we truly 
are. Just like he did with Jesus in the desert. He reminded him that he really is the son of God, that he cannot be tempted to get off of center of his identity. The spirit then is now gonna be really instructed for the disciples to remind us of this same truth. We are centered in nothing else besides our identity, which has been given to us by God's pursuit of his people. So as Jesus is instructing them, he is about to drop a bomb on them, ultimately. It's like, if, if the world is hating you isn't enough, he's also then going to really give them some good news along the way. And he's already done this, right? He's already started to prepare them for what he's about to say in verse five. So let me read it again so that we can have an understanding. Is he's preparing them for the dark days ahead. I wonder what is Jesus going to say? What is he going to emphasize? What is his best strategy to get his disciples equipped and ready for the path ahead? Verse five says this. Actually, I'll go back to 4b because that's kind of the beginning here. I don't know how they ended up. Like there's an old seminary joke that they found out, like the guy that created the verse uh, numbers was on the back of a donkey when he was doing it because it's just so random at points. Uh, and this is one of those moments where it's like, this is just such a random verse break. Uh, but here it is. In 4B, I'll say, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, God, giving us as much as we can handle for the path ahead. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going. They are so riddled with personal grief and loss that they cannot see the greater purposes of Jesus. Where are you going? They don't even ask. But verse six, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Verse seven, look at this, y'all. Nevertheless, I got to tell you some hard things. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you. Is that something that you believe in your life? You believe it's better that Jesus is not here right now? You believe it's better that Jesus is actually not on the face of the planet right now? I think a lot of us would kind of fantasize about the Bible and the Gospels and go, man, I wish he was here right now. If he was here right now, he would not be in Richmond, Texas. He'd be in Jerusalem. He'd be reigning and ruling from a literal throne and there would be a long line. If you think Disney World is bad, there would be a long line to see him. He would be still yet limited in his humanity by choice, right? And how he would serve and help those and humanity itself. If he was here, he would still be limited in that way. And yet it's, it's to our advantage that he would go away. Why? Because when he went away, not just dying, see, he's, he's pointing to something greater, not just the next couple of days of death and silence from God, but the next few weeks when he resurrects and then ascends to the right hand of the Father. That's what's better for us, is that he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over every circumstance of our life, especially the dark days. Believe that, y'all. Definitely the dark days. And that's why he's telling them this. It would be to your advantage. It is better for you if I go away. I know you want to cling to me. I know you want to, to, to hold fast to me. And I think mean, that's a good thing. But it's going to be better for you if you would let the purposes and plan of God unfold. You see, all of a sudden, they're going to be challenged to move from a faith that is really sight 
to a faith that is truly trust. And so I wonder if we believe that the Spirit's presence here and now is better for us than Jesus' presence here and now. Now, it's hard to distinguish between the two, right? Because truly, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ dwells in us through his Spirit. But he's saying this, I'm gonna go away. And although he could have orchestrated it a different way where Jesus also reigns here physically and also sends his Spirit here spiritually, he chose not to do that. And he says, there's a better plan for us. The Spirit would dwell here with us. Some things that he tells us in John 14 through 17 is he's kind of ramped up his warnings for his disciples. He's also ramped up for us these instruction on the Spirit. If we don't believe that the Spirit's presence is better for us to our advantage, let us remind ourselves of some truths that Jesus has unpacked for us since John 14. Just since John 14, like in this last night, does he really start to instruct his disciples on the Spirit? It's not before this. Like they don't have really a whole lot of instruction in the three years of following Jesus until this last night. And now all of a sudden he is going to blast them with a fire hose on spiritual knowledge. Truly the knowledge of the Spirit. He's going to equip them for dark days ahead. So if you're headed into some dark days, which you probably can't anticipate, or perhaps you're kind of just fumbling around in the dark, let this be some beautiful good news and some reminders for you on what and who the Holy Spirit is. Let me just read these passages for us so that we can kind of get our bearings around the Holy Spirit because he is better for us. He's better. Jesus says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 26, he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We turn the page to John 15. This was last week, right? 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, about Jesus And you also will bear witness. Don't think that the Spirit's testimony is gonna end with you. You'll then be the people that go and give testimony about Jesus because you have been with me from the beginning. And now all of a sudden, what what themes kind of rise to the top? There are several. I'm putting them all on the screen for you all at the same time so you can just kind of see what these themes for us should be a beautiful reminder and encouragement. This is the Spirit, the like. The Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity, this is what he's doing for you. The one who is the agent, uh, Jesus is the agent of creation, and yet, yet the Spirit continued to help with creation. That God is now in you if you're a believer. And look at what he's doing. He is for believers only. He, the Spirit is given to the church so that the church would witness to the world. He dwells in believers. This word for dwell means that he is setting up a permanent residency inside of you. He is never going to change his address. It doesn't matter what you do to your house. He's never going to look around and be like, man, I've had enough. I'm out. 
Instead, he continues to dwell no matter how messy we make that place. He will be with us forever, in verse 17, making good on the promise that Jesus will not leave us as orphans. The Spirit is with us. He is our helper or our advocate, as we've explained. The advocate, this person that is someone who is pleading the case of another in court. He's pleading the case of another in court. If you remember this from a few weeks back, the noun for for advocate has these uh, uh, synonyms that come with it. A champion, a supporter, a backer, a promoter, a proponent, a spokesman, a campaigner. He's a fighter. He's a flag bearer. And then as a verb, he does these things as all those things. He recommends you. He prescribes the gospel to you. He advises you, he urges you. Don't you sense that throughout the week, or do you? He urges you throughout the week. He supports you, he he backs you, he's favoring you, upholding you, speaking for you, and arguing for you. But more importantly, as we talk about the spirit of truth, he's doing all those things for the truth. He is the promoter of truth to you and for you. He is arguing the truth to you and for you. He is our advocate in such ways. The scriptures would go on, right? In verse 26, he reminds us of Jesus' teaching. He patiently brings up the words and teachings of Jesus uh, 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 in his life for us. Like, I need to be reminded of the life of Jesus. I need to be reminded when I feel betrayed or let down or, or when I think I've done really good things in life. I need to be reminded of the words and the life of Jesus again and again and again and again so I don't start believing lies about myself and about others. The Spirit is there to testify to us. He reminds us of Jesus' teachings. How do we uh, continue on? He says, he then is the Spirit of truth. I love this because it's repeated in every passage that I just read, 14, 17, again in 15, 26, and now again today in 16, 13. Everything he teaches us leads us into the truth. You ever get yourself in situations and you wonder which way to go, left, right, straight, backwards, don't really know, kind of disoriented, you can count on the spirit of truth to lead you in the right direction. Doesn't mean it's the easy direction, but the right direction, the direction that leads you into trusting Jesus more. Usually the uncomfortable direction because of that truth, that he's leading you in the direction of greater trust, of greater faith, of greater purpose. So God has a posture of leading all people into the truth. I want you to see that because it's important for us to understand that God has a posture of leading all people into the truth, because truly, the truth is Jesus. John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wants to lead us into more and more of Jesus. But we have a problem, don't we? Like, if you're you're not a believer in this room today, you have a problem. And what is that problem? The world, remember what we defined as the world? The created moral order, which is in active rebellion against Jesus. The world in active rebellion against Jesus. The problem is, we all thought we were right. 
weren't we? I mean, didn't we believe that before we were rescued uh, in our life, that Jesus came and rescued us? Didn't we think we were right? Don't we walk around most days and be like, actually, I'm right, you're wrong. We don't say that, but that's really our posture, isn't it? Every email we respond to, every text we go back and forth on, every, every argument that we get into, not that you would get into any arguments, you, you lovely Christian believers. Every point of view that you, you, you share a prayer request on, you know, can you believe that she did that? I'll tell you what. You're saying you're right and they're wrong. We think we're right. The Spirit is prompting us and for the world, for non-believers, he is convicting us that we're wrong. Convincing us that Jesus is right. This is a, a gracious act of the Spirit. I want you to hear the, the, the grace and the mercy because what he could have done was just leave us as the world or for you, if you're not a believer, leave you alone. But instead, if you're a believer and you're here, God is doing something mighty in your life, especially on Daylight Savings Day and the first week of spring break. If you're here, like miraculous things have happened already. God is doing something in your life if you're not a believer and those things are true. And what is he doing? See, our main problems as non-believers, as the world, is that we think we are right and Jesus is wrong. We are in active rebellion against God's order on the earth. Though God created all things, this happened in Genesis 3. He created all things and he called them all good. And then in, in the goodness of God, what did Adam and Eve do? They took that goodness and they, they hoarded it for themselves and they go, basically they heard the enemy tempting them that God was holding out on them. Did God really say? See that temptation? It's not that it's an absence of truth, it's a twisting of the truth. Did God really say? And we've believed that lie from the get-go, that God is holding out on us, that he, he knows something that he's holding out on us about, but instead, now the Spirit, sent to the world, is calling us to admit that we are wrong. He came to convict the world. So I did some research on truth here this week. We start talking about truth and that he's the spirit of truth. He wants to lead us into the truth. We're at the point where I actually have to kind of like define what that means. And I'm just going to point to Jesus as the ultimate definition of, Jesus, uh, of the truth. That everything that he did, everything that he said is the truth. And therefore he's our standard, he's our model, he's our goal. But he's also our path the way, the truth, the life. But you hear this all the time, right? Don't you hear like live your truth? Man, I'm just gonna live my truth, you live your truth. And it dismisses us from agreeing on the truth. So if you don't know this, um, uh, millennials, anybody millennial in here? Raise your hand. Holler, yeah. It's about to get good for you. Um, all right. 51% of millennials do not believe in an absolute truth. That sounds like not that many, because it's like just half of you, so if you just raise your hand, you're like, okay, who was it? Because it's you or me, or I don't know who it is. Half of the millennials do not believe in a, an absolute truth, and whether that's more than any other generation. So I tell you that because that generation, more than any other, is losing its grip on a firm, absolute truth. And so therefore, they're going to lose their grip on Jesus' firm, absolute truths, that he is the only way, that he is truly the truth. It's this beautiful picture of when 
he stands before Pilate, I'm getting ahead of ourselves in the book of John, but he stands before Pilate and Pilate asks him, what is truth? Truth is staring at him in the face and he cannot recognize it. For many of us, that's our truth. Like that is truly our truth, that we cannot recognize the truth. So there's this relative truth that is invading our lives more than ever. Um, For those that do not have any faith at all, 85% of all adults that have no faith do not believe in moral, absolute truth. And if you study trends at all, that number of no faith is growing and growing and growing. The fastest growing religion in America are the nuns, the no faiths. You've got to know this. It's not just a generational thing. I'm not, I'm not dogging on generations. This is a, a, a believe in Jesus or actually any faith and a no faith at all. I'm done with faith. So the Spirit, Jesus sends the Spirit to convict us of lies. If he's the Spirit of truth, then we've got to be convicted, proved that we're wrong about believing the wrong things about Jesus. That's the Spirit's job, right? We, we use this word conviction to kind of describe a, a guilty feeling, that I feel convicted about that or I got convicted when I said X, Y, or Z. It's not a bad thing, but it's not sufficient for here. So the same guy that defined the world also defined conviction this way in his uh, uh, voluminous study of this word. D.A. Carson, he's a scholar. I recommend uh, a lot of what he has to write, but it's really difficult to understand sometimes. So I'll put this before you. That's why there's a lot of uh, ellipsis in this because I'm cutting out some of the stuff to kind of make it uh, palatable. This is what conviction, he says, is putting to shame. This is what the Spirit is doing to the world, to non-believers. Putting them to shame, treating them with contempt, cross-examining, accusing, bringing to the test, proving, refuting. The Spirit then is shaming the world and convincing it of its own guilt and thus calling it to repentance. This idea of he's convicting the world is a loving confrontation to stand in front. Didn't you experience this? When you first came to know Jesus, didn't he stand in your way and say, no more? Didn't he lovingly stand in your way to say, you cannot live that life anymore? That, I know that you've gotten little specks of life along the way, but that is not the life that leads to life. That is a life that leads to death. Didn't he stand in your way to lovingly convince you that you were wrong and Jesus was right? Maybe that happened in a moment. Maybe that happened over a season. For me, it happened at 10.05-ish. October 12th, it was a Tuesday, 1999. Breakaway Ministries up at A&M. And the Spirit landed on me to say, you have sinned way more than you ever dreamed. But I love you. And it was that, but I love you, that broke me in half. Took a very strong and stubborn, you might think that I'm strong and stubborn now. You should have seen me in 1999. This strong and stubborn young man to break me and go, oh my gosh. I repent, I relent of my own ways. That sounds ominous, but it is an act of love to prove us of our guilt so that the world will repent. Repent of what? Jesus continues in verse eight. When he comes, he will convict the world. What will he convict the world on? 
What will he prove to them that their perspective is off? Three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then I love that Jesus explains these things. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. So let's just unpack this for a little bit. This is the main things that Jesus' spirit is sent upon the earth to convince and convict the world that we were wrong about him, particularly concerning sin. There is only one sin that matters when it talks about the non-believing world. It doesn't matter um, what gender they claim. It doesn't matter um, what, uh, what preferences they have as far as uh, sexual appetites. It doesn't matter um, whether or not they were divorced eight times or not. It doesn't matter how they, how they manage their money. It doesn't matter how they manage their employees. None of that, doesn't matter if they pay taxes or not. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is whether or not they believe in Jesus or not. So we can get frustrated with our coworkers or whomever it is that doesn't believe in Jesus, the world around us, about how they live, about how they're treating X, Y, or Z, if they're a womanizer or, or, or a gold digger, or whatever labels you wanna put on them. But the reality is, if they don't believe in Jesus, what other choices would they have to do? Why would they care about anything else, about aligning anything else to the scriptures if they do not believe in Jesus as son of God, as truly the Messiah, as the one who was to come? So he, he convicts them of their sin. And the main sin is not believing that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That's why the purpose of John is written, and these things are written so that we might believe that he is the Son of God. So he convicts the world, convinces them that they're wrong about Jesus, this unbelief. It is the Spirit's job, friends, to show people they're wrong about Jesus, not yours. So this is my, this is like, this is gonna be one of my Achilles heels, not to, bring up a sore subject for myself. But this is like one of my Achilles heels. I think that I can, I, can, I can be the role of the Holy Spirit. Like I'm gonna be the guy that convicts you of sin. Oh yeah, you don't see it, I'm gonna show it to you. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That he would be the one that leads people into the truth. Do I play a role in that? Yes, of course. But if, it's not, if they're not ready for that, I can't force it. So Holy Spirit, lead them into the truth. Lead me into the truth. Leave me in the truth about who I am. I'm limited in what I can do and what I can't do, and you are not. He is sent to convict the world of sin. He's also sent to convict the world of righteousness. You see, the reality is before we knew Jesus as the world, the world around you, be reminded, believers, and if you're a non-believer, be reminded of, of what the Bible's saying about you. Your standard of righteousness is off because you tend to, I tended to, and I still do, but I tended to, for sure, I tended to really compare myself to you, right? Don't we think we're gonna be okay at the throne room of God? Don't we think we're gonna be okay as long as we just compare ourselves to our brother or our sister? I mean, I'm not like that, I'll tell you that right now. I'm not a murderer. I've never stolen anything, or if I have it, well, you know, it was back when I was like eight. You didn't steal stuff as a kid? It's okay, it was just me. I need, a great, I need a grace from a young age. I will, I will, yeah, I will not give into the temptation to follow that rabbit, right? But this is, this is who we are, right? This is our standard of righteousness is often based on one another. In marriage and in friendships, we need to be reminded our standard of righteousness isn't each other. To where we look at each other and go, well, I'm better prayer than you. I'm more faithful than you. 
you're more faithful than me, then that heaps condemnation. So one is a self-righteousness and another one is a condemnation, all based on each other and not comparative to Jesus, the ultimate standard of righteousness, of holiness, of perfection. So if we're gonna stand before God, which we all will one day, and I asked somebody this recently, if you stood before God, why would he let you into heaven? And that person said, because I'm not that bad, I'm a pretty moral person. And I wept on the inside and then proceeded to share the gospel. And the reason why is because that's a, that's a false understanding of righteousness, isn't it? That we would stand before God and be accepted because we're not that bad. We're, we're then comparing ourselves to our brothers and sisters, comparing ourselves to the rest of the world. I mean, I've never done any prison time, at least not for long. And so we think of those things and we compare ourselves to our brothers, our sisters, or for the world around us. And Jesus, the Holy Spirit has sent Jesus, or the, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to convict us of our standard of righteousness. It is too low. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you've been angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. Oh man, the standard of righteousness just went way up. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You can do that. Who can't do that? But I tell you that if you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Okay, well, I thought I was innocent. Turns out, super guilty on both of those things. And Jesus comes in and he says, your righteousness must be better than what you thought. This is what he says in Matthew 5, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, were the Pharisees good people or bad people? Really, really good people. Like culturally, they were the standard of righteousness. Those guys didn't sin according to the law. They put so many laws around the law that they could never actually commit any sin against the law. They were culturally, man, they were like the standard. And he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You will never enter, unless it does, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we reshape our standard of righteousness. This is what Romans 10, verse three says, talking about a, a standard that really doesn't matter. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness, that's you and me, the world, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God sent his spirit to convict us of this. We need to hear this in this day. And then finally, he sent us, he sent us the spirit to convict us of judgment. The world, we needed, we needed this convicting. The world needs this convicting that it cannot look at the death of Jesus as a loss. The disciples needed to hear this, didn't they? Perhaps you need to hear this, that, that somehow God is absent amidst pain, that somehow he's kind of taken a break in the midst of darkness. See, that's the temptation that when we look upon the cross of Christ without spiritual eyes to see and spiritual hearts to believe that Jesus is doing something cosmic and beautiful and satisfying the Father's wrath on our behalf without those lenses, we're gonna look at that and be like, he's dead. Satan wins. But in fact, Jesus would say in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So if you put yourself in the position of the disciples, they're gonna walk into a very dark few days and as they do, they would be tempted to think, 
Well, Satan won. That's it. And Jesus is reminding them that the Spirit is going to testify to you. Satan had won. It looks like it. But instead, Jesus has won. And he is going to judge the ruler of this world. There's some beauty in that that we need to be reminded again and again. Sin, righteousness, and judgment that the Holy Spirit would convict or prove the guilt of the world. If you are a believer, you have come to know the deep love of God with which God has done this for you. If you're not a believer, this may sound awful, but there's no worse place than to be in opposition to God. And God wants nothing more than for you to not be in opposition to him. Because the way that he relates to believers is wholeheartedly different. To the world, face to face. To believers, shoulder to shoulder. Guiding, comforting, counseling. We'll get to that in just a moment. If you are here and you're not a believer, perhaps you have friends and family that are not believers, the Spirit is lovingly wanting to win you over to the will and the way of Jesus. And he's going to stand in front of you to convict you of your guilt, faulty thinking about sin and righteousness and judgment. And we need to be people that are praying that God would continue to do that for those non-believers in our life. It's the only way that they'll see that he, truly he is the better way. So, that's how the Spirit relates to non-believers. But as he's relating to believers, he is guiding believers, leading believers into the truth. We continue on in this instruction on the Spirit. Look at what Jesus says, right? So he's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's, he's, he's kind of standing in front of them. He's confronting them. He's proving their guilt so that they might repent. And for those of us who have repented of faulty thinking of sin, righteousness, and judgment, look at what he says in verse 12, 13, and uh, on. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And then in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, for whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Look at what the Spirit does. The Spirit's gonna glorify Jesus, verse 14. For he's gonna take what is Jesus's, and he's gonna make it known to you, disciple. All that the Father has is Jesus's. Therefore, Jesus says that the Spirit will take what is Jesus's and declare it and make it known to you, believer. What a great truth that we're not left here on our own to figure this thing out. Do you need to be reminded that this spirit is alive and active and a person who lives inside of us to guide us into all the truth? Not just some of it, all of it. Guiding, comforting, counseling. Remember, God is meeting you where you are so that he can bring you to the place where he wants you to be. And when you were a part of the world, he met you there, convicted you, brought you into the family, and now guides you. Still pointing out those little places of the world that are in your heart and going, that's gotta go. Can't, can't hold on to that anymore. Those grudges, that bitterness. Oh, saw that little, little shady move you did there. Yeah, that's gotta go too. 
But no longer is he confronting. Instead, now he is comforting, counseling, guiding, going, hey, over here, hey, over there. We've had that image before, but Jesus repeats it again and again because we are so apt to forget. I think that the way that we respond to the spirit of truth all depends on how we view truth. Are you a person that loves truth? Or are you a person that like, you've had a bad experience with truth? Maybe someone else really loved truth and then decided to smack you over the head with truth? That could give you an aversion to truth. But the spirit of truth is saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Continue to love and pursue the truth about God, about yourself, and about others. This is what the Bible says about those who would love the truth and be people of love. 1 Corinthians 13. You, there was a wedding recently in our church. Did you do, did you do 1 Corinthians 13, Nate? Yeah. Eh, maybe. All right. I wasn't there. I wasn't able to make it. But look, here's like, this is, the, this is the love passage, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Look what love does. This is what love does in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Will we be a people that love? If we are, we will rejoice in the Spirit reminding us and guiding us into the truth. So the place that Jesus wants us to go is all the truth. And the Spirit is here to guide us into all the truth. I want you to remember that definition that God is not convicting you believers in the same way that he is convicting the non-believers. For the non-believer, he's shaming them. Remember that? Eddie, put that definition back up just one more time. For the non-believer, this is what he's doing. He's shaming, he's treating with the, with the non-believer with contempt, with cross-examination, with bringing them to the test, shaming them. That doesn't apply to the believer. That's to the world. To the believer now, he's guiding there's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's no longer shaming you. For Jesus took that shame upon himself on the cross, Hebrews 12 says. He says he shamed shame. And I love the picture. He put shame in the corner. No longer to have any reign and rule over our lives. He's not shaming us, this spirit. No, instead now he's reminding us of the truth. No longer holding it over us and be like, mm, you got it wrong. Instead he's going, hey bro, hey sis. You got it wrong, but this is the right way. Guiding and comforting. He's no longer shaming us. He is correcting. He is disciplining us. He is rebuking us in love in a different way than he does with the world. And Jesus summarizes that ministry with this word, guide. The word guide means to assist in reaching a desired destination. You love that? The Spirit of God is assisting you in reaching a desired destination. He is meeting you where you are and taking you where he wants you to be. The problem is we get bogged down in pace. Do we not? I get bogged down in pace. Man, I didn't realize that at 40 I was gonna still be dealing with this stuff. I didn't realize at 30 I was still gonna be dealing with this stuff. I, mean, I thought I'd be past all this at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. I didn't realize that I'd still be doing this when I'm this age. Like the pace of life and, and how we're being made holy frustrates us. And yet we can depend on the spirit to guide us, counsel us, comfort us in the exact pace that we need in this life. 
It's gonna take a lifetime, y'all. Like we can't short circuit that process. It's gonna take us until we die. We can't reach it before we get to glory. And yet we want to. I need to be reminded of that again and again. The spirit knows the way. He knows the path. He knows the pace that we can handle and he knows the destination. And that destination again is Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the experienced captain of the ship. He knows the course. He knows what will happen on the stormy sea. He is the seasoned hiking guide. Like when I was in high school, we went away um, and, and we would do frontier camp and wilderness camp. And at frontier, you're kind of around at this camp. And, and at wilderness, you go like on a 10-day journey through the wilderness of Colorado. Anybody done this? Raise your hand. I'm speaking to basically one or two people, perfect. All right, so if you remember this in wilderness, you have a guide that is there. They know the way, they know exactly where to go. They, need, they know where it's gonna get troublesome, they know where they're gonna turn the corner and it's gonna turn out to be a beautiful glacier. And they know that they need to get there by lunch because they know that you're gonna wanna set up shop there for lunch. That's what an experienced guide will do on the journey. Same thing for the spirit. He's ready to show you more of God's beauty along the way. He's also there to warn you of the dangers of going into that dark place and walking around that and going over here. It may not be as beautiful, but it is better for us. That's this experienced guide that's walking along for us. So how does he do this, I wonder? Two things that he does this with. Number one, he does this through the word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scriptures breathed out by God. This is the scriptures that we hold in our hand. It is breathed out by God, sourced in God himself. It holds his characteristics of perfect, of true, of right, right? Of, of full of integrity. It is sourced in God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. This is what the word of God is for, for teaching, reproofing. That reproof is the same word for convict, for, for discipline, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. He does this through God's word. Will we be a people that are known for loving God's word? That's so why we pray that you're in a growth group, that your growth group is actually getting into God's word. And if you're not, we pray that you are this year. We're gonna come around alongside the partners this year to encourage that type of discipline in your life. That's why the first uh, thing that we're gonna feast on during Lent is the re reading of the scriptures. We cannot know the words of Jesus and be reminded of the words of Jesus until we know them. The word of God is the way that God leads us in this path but it's not just the word of God. Christianity was never meant to li be lived in isolation. You can't like, go online and live stream the full purposes of the church. That's why you're here, right? If it was about live streaming and convenience, you'd be at home and you'd be like live streaming your favorite preacher, whoever that may be. But instead, you know that Christianity is about the community as well. You know that God is making you holy, not just through his spirit, not just through the regular preaching and teaching of God's word and the application therein, but also through the Holy Spirit in my brother and in my sister. Also through, my, through the Holy Spirit in, in, in you to me and in me to you. That we would speak the truth in love to one another, not just speak the truth, 
but with a motivation that we would continue to have a love for another person. This is what Ephesians 4 says. Look at what it says. Ephesians 4, 15. Rather, we were to grow up speaking the truth in love. We were to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That's to Christ. And then in verse 16, it says, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's plan to guide us is through God's word. God's plan to guide us is to guide us through the spirit in our brother and in our sister. So question as we end. Will we follow the spirit of truth? Will we follow the spirit of truth into this destination of truth, all the truth? Because here's what that means. It means we're gonna have to admit that we're wrong. I don't know about you, but I like to be right. Don't amen that. I hear, I hear, can feel it coming out of you. I was talking to my wife. Uh, she's like, oh yeah, you do like to be right. She wasn't really, I was just, you know, anyways. But I do like to be right, right? Don't you like to be right? Yes, Carol would agree. Now you're on podcast forever as someone who wants to be as right, perfect. We all love to be right and yet if we're gonna follow the spirit of truth, it's going to mean that we have to do the hard work of realizing, stopping, praying that the spirit would help us realize where we're wrong along the way and be okay with that. Have the humility to repent of false thinking of believing the truths of the gospel again and again. That he's the spirit of truth. I'm not. Jesus does not want one hour a week for y'all or from y'all. Because that doesn't challenge you to show up here like it's challenging today for various reasons. But it's not a challenge to show up here, listen to someone else exercise priesthood and then go home and pretend like it really doesn't matter. That's not the Christian life. He wants more from you than that. Matter of fact, he's gonna get so into your life that he's gonna mess with you. He's gonna get into places that you're like, man, that's none of your business, Jesus. He's gonna get into your wallet and he's gonna wonder, how are you spending money? And he's gonna instruct you, here's how you should spend money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. He's gonna get into your marriage and he's gonna put people around you through God's word and through his community to instruct and encourage you in your marriage and how you raise your children. He's gonna bring you to the point of, of, of standards in the Bible on what to do and how to do it. And then he's gonna surround you with people that are fumbling through that mess together with you. Right, this is what Jesus does. He gets in your business. He makes you uncomfortable. He's gonna help you define things like love. He's gonna help you define things like marriage, speaking of truths. He's gonna help us define things such as equality and tolerance. He's gonna help us define things that are tearing our world apart. Why is it? Because we prefer our own way. And Jesus is leading us to trust him through all these things through salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through, through, through understanding what the marriage covenant is all about, about all of life. Not just an hour on any given week, but everything. How we deal with friendships, all of it. So the question is, will we trust him when he says you're wrong 
so that we can see that he's right. And it's not about right and wrong. It's really about truly trusting Jesus. We follow him. We lean on the spirit. Will we be a people that are dependent upon the spirit of truth? Not to run around like we've got some like special notice on the truth, but instead humbled by the spirit. Leaning in to him. Dependent upon him. Because for the disciples, the darkness is coming. The disorientation is coming. And for us, maybe it's darkness, maybe it's disorientation, but for sure, there's a war on your soul and the enemy isn't each other. The enemy is the enemy, not flesh and blood, but the principalities and the rulers of the air. We'll be a people that lean into the trust, to the truth, continue to follow Jesus' spirit. I pray we are. Let me pray. Father, I pray that we are a people that would be open, respondent to your spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's, there's so much that could be said about him. And yet, you've said these few things in these couple of chapters, and so we know they're important. We ask God that you give us clarity. You ask to give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts. Help us understand where, where we've just gone astray and lovingly bring us back. That's what confession, this confession cloth was all about is to just help us. It's not a, a performance in front of people. It's just to help us remind ourselves that we got some things wrong in life and we're not condemned, but purchased. So would you help us? Would you remind us of the truth? Would you lead us into the truth about you, Father, Son, and Spirit? Lead us into the truth about who you are. Lead us then into the truth about who we are Humans, not God, humans set out to trust and depend on God. And then would you lead us not just about into the truth about yourself, but also about us, and then also about those around us. Would you help us discern how we can love people, how we can meet people, how we can pursue people to the glory of Christ with the gospel? Help us endure the hatred of the world. Help us engage the world with the love that you sought and saved us with. And help us remember that you're for us. You're not against us. And that you welcome us. Whether we've just got done sinning on a Saturday night or woken up this morning excited to be in your presence. Wherever we are, I pray, Lord, that you'd meet us and you bring us to where you want us to be. We're grateful in Christ's name. Amen.